Scuttlebutt, written by Donnie McVeigh, read by Roger Burley, hosted by Leslie McVeigh. Music Scuttlebutt, courtesy of the composer Chuck Romanoff. Scuttlebutt is a Bertha May production and is sponsored by Portland Media Center. Scuttlebutt is the story of two young men from a tiny community in Casco Bay, Maine, one who went to war during World War II and one who stayed home, and how their dreams of life in the community have changed. When we last left Scuttle, the situation between Justice Neil Dow and the warden was resolved, but not before some disagreement. And now, Part 5 of Scuttlebutt by Donnie McVeigh. See the burly longshoreman showing off his biceps, heaving and a-hauling mighty freighters in and out. All of the town folk think he's quite a guy, except he don't lift a finger to help around the house. Scuttlebutt! Ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Sperma, without his buddy to chum around with, was at a loss for something to do. So he went out looking for opportunities. He headed for town, or the nearest thing to it that Scuttle had. He didn't follow the road, but dodged into the woods and followed his favorite path. He had heard recently that a land development company had been selling land up this way, and he figured it was time he checked on things. Halfway to town, he began hearing noises mostly pounding and sawing. Sneaking closer, he could hear a man telling what a great chance they had to get in on the ground floor of what promised to be a thriving development. There were half a dozen people standing around. Sperma was thoroughly disgusted with the salesman's spiel, so we crept out around the site, taking note of absolutely everything. Back on the old familiar path that his flat feet had traveled countless times, he had thought of how put out he'd been when told he was not fit for the military. No matter what he said or how hard he tried, they wouldn't change his designation from 4F. He was so embarrassed that he stayed away from Scuttle for over a year. He came to one of his favorite sections of the path and let himself go, running full speed down the steep curving path, getting that sense of freedom that felt like flying. The sound of the ocean was now much louder, and a short distance ahead, he came to a small clearing containing a cottage facing the ocean. Sperma looked at his previous handiwork and said, Shoot. He removed the padlock that had apparently, that had apparently locked and went in through the latticework door. A careful look at the latticework from the inside and another growl of disgust brought him to retrieve the claw hammer he left behind on his last visit. The bundle of laths with all the nails pulled out were toted outside, untied, and with trap nails from his pocket, he nailed the laths back as near like they were before as possible. But there was one glaring vacancy in the latticework. He went back under the house and squirmed his way to the back. He found two short pieces of broken lattice lath that he had thrown up back and lugged them outside. Carefully fitting the two pieces together, he nailed them top and bottom. Hooking his hammer into his belt, 
He walked a few paces away, whistling, looked back, and approved of his job. Sperman felt it wasn't his fault that they'd done the door wrong so that he couldn't make bigger diamonds. He then got back on his trek. The path trended a little more inland, and the land jotted out further into the ocean to where Sperma couldn't hear the surf anymore. The old path, at times almost a road, was interrupted by a scene of desolation, desolation caused by the great New England hurricane. Acres of large spruce trees were laying in windrows, slowly getting ready to rot. Much of Maine is ledge, so that when the Ice Age came through, the last one, that is, which wasn't that long ago compared with forever, took most of the thin layer of soil with it. In the future, barring another ice age, the soil will reach a depth that the roots can be happy with, and trees will then securely die of old age. Sperman took a hard right at the blowdowns, tracing the new path. He knew that if he went a ways around the fallen trees, he'd find his father's old truck. That afternoon, three years ago, had started innocently. He driving the old high-sided Rio truck up a narrow road for a load of firewood. Manley was along to help, and the boys were having a good time. Sperma had been picking his way around some of the dead trees and was making progress toward a good firewood area when they found themselves on a slight cliff with no possible way to go ahead. They had started backing up. Everything was going well, and they were almost to a place to turn around when a loud snap was followed by crunching and a shuddering stop. The crew walked home with no firewood and no truck, but they did save the axes. Elmer Soames is irate, and he belittled his son every way he possibly could. Sperma took it for a while, but got mad and then quit high school and went to Portland to enlist. That plan fell through when his flat feet failed him, but he did get a job in the South Portland shipyard building Liberty ships. Even though he had not graduated from high school, Sperma was a very bright young man, though most times he kept it well hidden. At the shipyard, he worked with people who didn't know him, and this freedom allowed him to excel in many ways. The higher-up bosses took note and quickly moved him into jobs requiring brain power. Sperma made more than he would like than he ever thought possible. So much so, in fact, that he was able to send his father $100. That was four times as much as the Rio had cost. He wrote to his mother now and then, but didn't go back to Scuttle for a very long time, and he had no contact with his father. Sperma swung into Sam's and found him sawing up oak into what looked an awful lot like the laths that would have been used to build lobster traps. What are you up to, Sam? Oh, it's you, Sperma. Sam shut down the bench saw. I was just sawing up some of that oak you'd saved. It was drying out, so me and my trusty sword were slicing up some laths for you boys. That okay? Sam reached in the pile and held up a lath. Even narrow, maybe like this? Picking up the long, narrow stick, Sam gave the lath to Sperma for inspection. They do look kind of narrow, Sam. Well, that's good and okay. We'll get more water. Find this kind, less weight and more water. Sperma wasn't convinced. With wider laths, you got more for the money than 
uh, since they were sold by the piece. He would have to think about that for some time. Then he noticed that Sam's rib-bending pipe was in the fire pit with a fire burning under it. What you gonna bend, Sam? Trotting over by his floor drill, Sam held up a bed piece and passed it to Sperma. While the younger man was admiring the heavy piece of oak with a drilled hole in each end, Sam fished the pipe out of the fire. Then, after giving it time to cool off a little, he unscrewed the pipe cap off one end and extricated several long oak strips. Each end of the strips was machined to about one inch. He then inserted one end of the hot strip into one end of the bed piece. He bent the wood around a keg, then forced the other end into the other hole. With a happy look, he passed it over to Sperma. And he looked it over and congratulated a beaming Sam. Looks like professional job, Sam. It's some perfect. Sam came back. Oh, I better start after bending these other ones before they can't bend no more. Thank you, Sam. But haven't you got better things to do? Oh, I do this just for fun, Sperma. Sperma left, scratching his head. It was seldom that he could think of nothing to do. He didn't even have a fallback plan. At the store, he thought Mr. Lister might have a job for him, but he had gone up to visit the Falkinghams. So he gave up and went walking up the road to his house, thinking that Manley might get home early and come pick him up. No such luck, and Elmira was having a nap, so he went downstairs to visit with his mother. The talk got around to the Listers. Sperma questioned his mother about them. I kind of remember when they all of a sudden were here. I was just talking with Mrs. Lister, and she said that she was very worried about her husband. She probably said a lot more, but that lawyer fella that brought the McGinty cottage come in and bought some milk. He left, and she got to talking about them. Never once mentioned Mr. Lister again, so I left. Where'd they come from, and why'd they open a store here, of all places? Eloise, Sperma's mother, sat in the old-fashioned rocking chair that was in the house when they moved in. She said, The original store was started by the Beale family, who actually came from Beale's Island down east. According to the tell, they moved to Scuttle to get to a livelier way of life. <laughs> Just imagine that, Scuttle. We must be lively, and we didn't even know it. She went to the kitchen, pumped some, and called in. You want a glass of water, Sperma? He refused that graciously. <clears throat> she sat and continued. The Beale family went to an evening service at the Seventh-day Advent Church in Halftown. Apparently, there was no sign of bad weather when they went over before dark, but when they headed home, it would have been after dark. Elma said there must have been an ocean storm that sent some huge breakers that were not even noticeable until they got to shoaling water. The only thing anyone knew was that the hoss come home terribly beaten up, pulling a demolished wagon. <clears throat> that poor thing died a couple of days later. The research partly found no trace of Mr. Beale, and, and their remains have never been found. The boy and his little sister were discovered huddled together in a very shallow cave. They had both been beaten up by the seas, and they drowned. She stopped talking and wiped her eyes on her apron. 
It was a sad time in Scuttle, Maine. How do the Listers fit in here with this, Ma? They come from way up in the county, nearly to Canada, according to the tell. Some relation to the Beals, I'm sure. They hustled right on down here in time to give the dead children a decent funeral. She pictured the service. You never saw such a gathering. The church was full, the yard loaded, and the street almost to guts. There was even six or eight politicians. <laughs> was an election year, and you know how those people are. She jumped up. Ooh, I've got to go get supper on. It's almost 4.30. But you still haven't told me anything about the listers, ma. The only thing I really know about them is the story your father brought home from there. Seems as if Mr. Lister was trying to find a way to unlay rope so the lobstermen wouldn't have to, you know, sort of knit potheads from the unlaid rope. It seems Mr. Lister was just rigging up his latest try at unlaying rope. He got Elma to hold a swivel, and as Elma and his wife had two swivels. They were back up to keeping some strain on the strands. He started the electric motor, and before he could shut it off, the kinks were crawling all over the store. Poor Mrs. Lister had several snarls in her hair, and some of it got torn out by the roots. I think he gave up after that. But he did write to Washington and suggest that it would make sense to not twist all that sizal up into rope in the first place. <laughs> it sounds too sensible for our government to figure out, Sperma had added his two cents. I guess you're right, because Mr. Lister got a nasty letter back and started right out with, don't you know there's a world war on and we all have to make sacrifices and before you write any more letters, think of the fighting men of America. Mr. Lister took it wicked, Had his wife said. She was worried he might do something crazy. He is such a nice man. Suppose that's what she was talking about. War's been over almost a year. Could he still be thinking about that letter? Oh, I hope not, that poor dear man. Eloise started for the kitchen, pivoted around, and in a confidential tone said, Sperma, you are Elmira's best friend. What do you think she should do with her life? Now she is just marking time. Sperma was thinking about what she said as he went up the stairs. That's the longest talk I've ever had with my ma since I was in school, and it was some fun. He found his sister awake and changing Marie's diaper. He started right out. Sis, you got to go do something, right or wrong. Just laying around here is not helping you or the baby. You should take the bull by the tail and face the public right in the eye. He hesitated a moment. You know that Mr. Lister's an awful nice man. Marie, Marie giggled. Is he one I should face right in the eye? You know what I mean. You mostly been hiding out here for the last six months because you don't want to face people. Would you? She placed the baby back in her bassinet. But you are right. I have been hiding. Manley had an early supper and then went up front, kind of searching for his partner. Mr. Lister hadn't seen him, but he did tell Manley that Joy Falkingham had just arrived home from college and her job at the college library. That was good news to the young man, so he quickly took off for her house. 
He had walked about halfway there when he met her coming toward him. He was glad he'd walked. Now he had an excuse to talk to her. When Joy found it was manly, she hugged him and, without letting go of him, asked him if he was now healthy. This embarrassed him because his wound was really a joke, and Joy had a twin brother who was badly wounded fighting the Japanese. I'm good, Joy, but Mr. Lister was telling me just now that Andy ain't too good. I'm awful sorry to hear it. I was headed for your house, see if there's anything I could... What's that? Sounded like a man's voice. Oh, I heard it also, Joy answered. Sounded like it came from up on the plug. They walked a few paces toward the Falkingham home and yelled as loud as they could. A strained voice came back. I'm stuck up here and I can't move. Can you get me some help? Manley turned toward the girl and said, His voice is, I think, one of them men visiting Morgenthau's. He considered what getting that man off the rock pile might entail. Joy, would you go down to the store and get all the flashlights they've got and then bring my truck back? I'll see if I can get up to where that feller is stuck. Promise me you'll be careful and won't do anything dumb. Can you do that? Yes, dear, he said with a laugh. Joy came off at a gallop and manly began searching for a place to climb the plug. This pile of slivered rocks was not completely unknown to him. Three years ago, along with Shad Smythe and Sperma, he had gone all the way to Halftown over these poor excuses for rocks, but that was in full daylight. He felt for a place to climb up, and he did manage to pull himself up to what felt flat. Yelling to the man, he figured a direction to head in. He was almost crawling. The rocks had stopped. Stepped, he stepped on were just as flaky and breakable as he remembered, crumbling under his feet if he put any weight on them. Losing his balance, Manley let out a loud grunt. He heard a voice very close, so close that it was a wonder he hadn't tripped over it. What did you, what'd you say, young man? Oh, it was just, it, was, it, it wasn't nothing. Are you the man from out west, from one of them small states on the west coast? Manly managed to get closer to the man without stepping on him. I'm Manly Moore. I met you, was that only last night? Seems a heck of a lot longer than that. I guess you don't have a flashlight. It would be a help. The man interrupted. I do have a light. I just can't reach it. And fat lot of good it does in my belt. Manly felt around the man's waist and found it in its own special case. It felt like it was a Boy Scout model 20 years ago. He turned it on and got about the same illumination as a birthday candle. Yet even this faint light showed Herbert Hannibal's predicament. His right arm was pinned just above the wrist, and the pressure of that large slice of rock was enough to restrict the flow of blood to his hand. Manly heard the Model A truck arrive and the voices from below. Hey, Manly, we're here. We got the lights and rope if you want them. That had to be Sperma. Manly was trying to think ahead. Sperm, want to ask Joy to turn that truck around crossways and try to aim the headlights this way? Well, she already did turn your truck around, and now she's doing Mr. Lister's truck too. Can't you see them? Manly spoke to the trap man. 
I got to get more light before we try to get your arm free, okay? You have got me wondering in the name of heaven, are you, what are you doing up here on this pile of rocks? The pinned down man gave a strained laugh. I bought this area that they call the plug just today. I was looking to see what I'd gotten myself into. Again, with an effort, a mass appeared. The man who owned it said it was nothing but a pile of rotten rocks. It ain't good for nothing. What would I want it for? He wasn't lying, was he? What do you think we should do to get you out of this pickle you got into? Probably the safest plan would be to get contact with Halftown and get their fire department rescue team to come. How's that strike you, mister? Not real good. Sounds like I'd be here at least another hour, or more like two. I'd rather we get right at it. Manly could hear a growing crowd noise and made a decision. Okay, let's give her a try. First we need more light. Standing up, he yelled for sperma. His friend hollered, Shut up, everybody, so I can hear Manly. Facing up the hill, he yelled, Was that you hollering, Manly? Hey, we need flashlights up here. See if you can throw some up, Spam. A few seconds later, they heard something land behind them. He yelled again, Turn the light on and don't throw it quite so hard this time. So the light crashed down the rocks from them this time. One more time and give it a dike more elevation. All right, go ahead, I'm ready. This time the flashlight appeared with a glow from its back. Manley made a lunge and missed it, but Herbert Hannibal caught it in his one good hand. Now, using the new flashlight, the difficulty extracting the trapped hand was shown to be greater than either one expected. Manley wished for a crowbar but he knew that was an impossibility. There was no way it could be transferred up to them. He knew there were no stout trees on the rock pile, so that was no sense to think about either. What else you got hitched to that belt, Mr. Hannibal? I'm sorry, but all I have left here in my belt is an axe. Goodness, an axe could be a lifesaver. Is it under you? The man tried to move. I can't feel it, but actually... I can't feel anything. Manley got his hand partway under Mr. Hannibal and felt a, hand, felt a handle. Wiggling it around, he pulled it free, not what he called an axe, but at least a shot hatchet. He was disappointed, but didn't say anything. I'm going to stick the blade of this hatchet in the crack next to your hand and try to pry it up enough for you to yank your hand clear. But I will have practically no leverage so you've got to be ready to haul that hand out. That's so the tiger shack that's snapping his teeth at you together misses. The noise down below had become bedlam. On three, then, ready. Manly pried for all he was worth. The large rock never moved, but a piece of the leading edge broke off, and Manly sensed the older man falling back. He couldn't see him because their only light was squashed under the rock that had slid down after a moment. Sure hope that shack didn't get to bite your hand, Mr. Hannibal. Ooh, it was a close thing, but by my count, there were still four fingers and a thumb left, and that's plenty, thanks to you. I don't know what you're, we're going to do now. I think Sperma said 
something about that last flashlight. About then, he realized that he'd been seeing flashes of light every few seconds. He knew in an instant who would be appearing, and true to form, it was Sperma. Joy sent me up to escort you fellows down. Besides, this is the only flashlight left, and we know your track record, Manly. With one light, it wasn't too difficult to get off the plug. As they approached the car lights, Sperma instructed them to stand up straight and look like conquerors. Manly found Joy sitting in his truck. Thanks for the lights, Joy. It was a good idea to aim the truck lights up the plug. He noticed the coils of rope in the truck. You even thought to bring rope. You were some smart young pup if I ever saw one. You can thank Mr. Lister for that. I'd never have thought of it. Eh, yeah, me either, I guess. Manley tried to think of something to say to her, but as always, he just couldn't. Unable to restrain himself, herself, Joy said, Daddy got a letter that suggested that maybe a visit home might be beneficial for Andy. They still haven't come up with a reason why. Is that right? It's one thing to know what is going on in the body, but quite another to know what's happening in the brain. She made to get out of the truck. Would you like a ride home? Spoken hopefully. I don't think so, Manly. I'm going to visit the Listers for a while, and it's not much of a walk, but thanks for the offer. She walked a few steps away and backed up to the open truck window. Oh, I forgot to tell you, thank you, and good night. And there are a couple of coils of sizal in the truck. They each grabbed a coil and returned them to the store. Manley had to admit that three of the borrowed flashlights were no more, and he had lost track of the fourth one. Mr. Lister's answer, however, was, Not to worry, Manley. Thank you for a job well done. Okay for me to stop by tomorrow, Joy? I ain't seen your father since I got home. An inspired Manley said, I'll come early. You are always welcome, but we may be out. A sardine carrier is supposed to come in for Lord Heron, so we might be down to the cove. Manley tried to picture this slim, beautiful young girl hauling on a purse saying, It was difficult to visualize, even though he knew both of the Falkingham twins worked like men. Their mother had run off with the former stern man who had lived on the premises. The close proximity apparently gave the younger man a chance to talk her into leaving. A few birthdays they got cards, but then nothing. Lister's truck showed up a sperma driving. He brought back with him the only surviving flashlight and three girls. After passing the light over, Sperma came into Joy's recently vacated seat. Well, what we gonna do now, he asked Manley. And if I know, what would you suggest? Well, we can go get some food. I'm kinda hungry. Sperma looked over at his buddy and said, That poor girl looks just like her brother. Who's that, Sperma? A mystified Manley came back. Joy Falkenham. She's got about as much shape as a flagpole. There's absolutely nothing wrong with Joy's shape. She's as perfect as can be. I'd like you to know. Manley sounded as if Sperma's words had gotten him somewhat hot. Manley 
not one to spew out a lot of words, surprised Sperma, who had no idea his companion had feelings for joy. Jeepers, Manly, sounds like you got it bad. I wouldn't have mentioned her flat chest if I'd known. If you can't say something nice, just keep your trap shut, okay? Manly answered, and the tone of his voice gave Sperma a clue to be very careful what he said about the underdeveloped girl who had already finished two years of college. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me.